0: This is the Monday, December 17th, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore How I miss those old pals of mine The sawdust is gone from the floor Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore.
1: On the way to Tehran flight over forbidding mountain scenery certainly seemed to camouflage the Persian hospitality awaiting the delegates. Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill, plus their staffs, all came by air, the Soviet's great leader leaving his country for the first time for over 30 years. Roosevelt and Churchill, on the other hand, were coming fresh from their latest conference, a Cairo meeting with Chiang Kai-shek, but they were flying to what was obviously the most important conference of the war.
2: Hello, history lovers, and Welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine pulls up a chair at the summit table with the three major powers that won World War II, the United States, United Kingdom, and Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Led by Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin, Their combined military might crushed Hitler, Tojo, and Mussolini's Axis powers. Based on these smiling pictures from their meetings, we might assume that the Allied leaders always marched in lockstep. But as with any human relationships and clashes of cultures, these very different men disagreed, teased, taunted, and deceived. Here to weave the personal conflicts at the top of the war In with the battles on land, sea, and air, is Winston Groom. He brings us the Allies, Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin, and the unlikely alliance that won World War II. Illustrated with more than two dozen contemporary photos and maps, the Allies is the kind of history I love. One that reminds us that real human beings cobbled together the world we live in today and that we should look at them not as the man on the dime or cast in bronze, but as flawed human beings like any of us. Winston Groom covered the political and court beats for the Washington Star in his birthplace of Washington, D.C., enjoyed a stint here in New York City, and then returned to the Alabama of his youth. In addition to having served as an officer in the Vietnam War, he is the author of 19 books, These include the iconic novel, Forrest Gump, and nonfiction titles, including The Generals, Patton MacArthur, Marshall, and the Winning of World War II, The Aviators, Eddie Rickenbacker, James Doolittle, Charles Lindbergh, and the Epic Age of Flight, and Conversations with the Enemy, the story of Private First Class Robert Garwood, a book which earned a nomination for the Pulitzer Prize. Okay. Okay. Now that we've chosen our spot among the big three at the Tehran conference, let's join Winston Groom and meet the Allies. I'm joined on the line by Winston Groom, author of The Allies, Roosevelt, Stalin, Churchill, and the unlikely alliance that won World War II. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show.
3: Well, thanks for having me on.
2: I didn't want to be full of myself, but I said to you when you first called me that I felt I knew a lot about this. I felt this might be one of those books when I picked it up before I looked at the author's name and realized your body of work. Sometimes people will just take a bunch of other biographies and they'll smush them together into a new book and repackage it. That's what a a lot of popular fast history has come down to. But you showed me things here. You taught me things here in the Allies that made me look at this in a new way. As an author, a veteran yourself, you understand the importance of this. It's not just you wanted to pump out a book. How do you go about taking three men that are so instantly recognizable not just in the U.S., but across the world, and approaching a publisher, approaching writing the book, and bringing something new to it so people will want to pick it up and say, well, maybe I'll open my mind a little bit and see what I don't know. What is our new look at history after all this time has passed? How did you go about approaching that? And say you had something new to tell, and you wanted to give people a fresh look at the big three.
3: Well, there almost always is something new to tell, uh, it doesn't have to be something that's completely new, meaning that nobody's ever heard it before, because then you wouldn't know it. Mm. Uh, but I've thought about this from time to time. I, I'm principally a fiction writer, a novelist, and I think that I have a way of looking at things that's a little bit off from your standard historian. What I try to do in these books, is this is my third one where I've taken three characters The first one was the aviators, which is Charles Lindbergh, Eddie Rickenbacker, and Jimmy Doolittle. And the next one was the generals. That was George Patton, George Marshall, and Douglas MacArthur. And what I think I'm doing here is I'm bringing a little bit of freshness to it. And by that, I mean, I haven't been teaching this subject for 40 years. Hmm. I'm approaching it really not out of total ignorance, but I'm not really overly familiar with my subjects. And so... I guess I'm vain enough to think that what delights me might delight the reader. So I think I can bring little anecdotes in that a train this story and might be tempted to skip over. I don't really know how to explain it other than that. I try to write it as best I can to make it as interesting as I can and to make it as informative as I can for a reader and hope that they go away with something. You see, when I do these three people, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin, say, if I did a full-blown biography on each one of them, where I'd have to explore every orifice, whether I wanted to or not, or whether I thought it was interesting or not, but you'd have to do that in a full-blown biography, which would be probably somewhere between 800 and 1,000 pages, and you multiply that. So I'd come up with what the reader would, would go through 3,000 pages. I'd do this and maybe, what, I don't know, four or 500. And I think that I've established an audience there that likes this, they come away knowing a heck of a lot more about these people and their times than they did before they read the book, but they haven't spent, you know, two months trying to read a full big biography on it. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. 445 pages, by the way, in the Ah. hardcover, so exactly right in there. And that's true because I always say to authors that when I read the book, if it defeated any attempts at skimming, you know, when you read a book sometimes and you say, well, this is a little filler, sometimes you even see the author will use the same phrases again and you're just tired that day or you just want to get to the end of it, especially if you're looking at it from the standpoint that you're going to have an interview. Sometimes authors are surprised. I say, I read the book or I'll say to publishers, send me the book. I can't I can't book the interview till I actually read it because a lot of people won't, though they'll put it on the coffee table, right? And just so that their guests see that they're reading it, but they never actually pick up that thousand page book and and read it. It's just how things are now. We're not Theodore Roosevelt down there in Brazil or Churchill out in the, in Africa hunting where they would bring those books because that's all they had to read. And I like that you look at it as you're trying to tell a story because that's what history is. You're not just writing for other historians, which a lot of publications are. A lot of authors write books and then they say well I just want that to be for my colleagues in the two offices that are on either side of me they don't necessarily want it to be accessible to people that just want to pick up a book and learn what happened that have a personal connection to the war as I have and as you have that we'll get to a little bit later and so I like that you bring a fiction eye to it because storytelling is storytelling that's the basis of history
3: well, that's that's the deal. I mean, what you're describing, Mr. Ray's writing other stories, it's like poetry these days. That's what it's come down to, the poets write for other poets. It's too bad. I have no brief against historians, trained historians. I think they do wonderful work. But it's just what, what I do, what I do, I do it because I like it. And I enjoy doing it. And if I ever get to the point where I don't like it, and I'll return the money to the publisher for my advance, and <laughs> we'll go that right way. But so far, I've enjoyed every bit of it. I delight in finding little things. For instance, Roosevelt, when he was a young man, young boy, was sent off to Exeter, a boys' Episcopal prep school, Groton in Massachusetts, where the main punishment for misbehavior was, Waterboarding of all things. And <laughs> I found that to really be interesting because now it's a federal crime. <laughs> and Stalin, I didn't realize when he was a young man, had studied for the priesthood, but it, by the age of 16, he'd become a Bolshevik, a communist, and he began robbing banks and extorting money from people and, and engaged basically in, I guess, what you might call fundraising for the party, <laughs> which is essentially a criminal enterprise of extortion and murder and so on. And I didn't realize that Churchill, Winston Churchill, had been so poorly treated by his parents when he was young. I mean, you know, the, the old saying that children should be seen and not heard. Well, he was neither seen nor heard yeah. <laughs> all of his young life. But he was kept on a separate floor of the house with his brother, and he would see his father maybe once a month, and he'd see his mother maybe a couple of times more than that. It was just pathetic. They sent him off when he was seven to a English boarding school and they just left him there. And you can tell you can see his letters that he wrote home, Dear Mommy, I am in the school play, won't you please come and see it? And she didn't even bother to answer and the same thing with his father. He would write he was to uh, be say the track meet and beg his father to come and see him and his father of course was a a huge uh, politician in England, and he never, would never respond. It was just sad, a kind of loneliness as a young man. His father, Churchill's father, thought he was too stupid to become a lawyer, so he, they sent him to Sandhurst, which was the British military academy, sort of the British West Point, and he became an outstanding officer. You know, you you look at pictures of Churchill, he's this pudgy little old man, You don't realize he was one of the finest polo players in England.
2: Even after his arm is dislocated, he still sticks to it, right? (laughs) Yeah, he he strapped it to his shoulder, and and he's a fine horseman. And wins. They win the championship, even though he has that dislocated shoulder, right? Yeah,
3: they won the the All-India Championship.
2: Yeah. His regiment, all the British regiments in
3: India had a tournament. He was brave as a lion in battle, and... His first assignment, a battle assignment, sent him up into the the Hindu Kush, what what is essentially now part of Afghanistan, where he he fought these tribesmen who were the great grandfathers of the same people we're fighting over there today. And all these things that I didn't know, and they interested me. And I I guess I'm vain enough to think they interest me, they should interest the readers.
2: Well, it certainly interested me, and I not just because I love reading about Churchill. Things like, I'm listening to you talk about how his father didn't believe in him, didn't think he was smart enough. Even when he does show his skill as a horseman and gets into the cavalry, Queen's First Sars, I think it is, and his father isn't proud of him, he says, well, what are you going to the cavalry for? Now you have to pay for a horse, you you have to pay for a batsman to look after the horse, and all these things. Why don't you go into the infantry? He's almost literally telling his son, you're only smart enough to go stop a bullet, to be cannon fodder. And he says, you said about seeing his parents, he says he had maybe four or five real conversations with his father in his life. And so you give us little tastes of that here in the Allies. And I like to think people will go and read maybe a a bio on it and say, well, I, I have a broader picture of the person, maybe some of these things about FDR or even Stalin. I didn't know that Stalin trained for the priesthood of all things, it maybe makes you interested to go read something else. And that's something that I would guess is also from your fiction experience, that you need to edit it down, you need to discipline yourself to not go off on tangents. Maybe an interview like this is a place you can flesh out some of that research, but you just have to put in what's important to keep that story moving forward.
3: Well, that's exactly the thing, course, I do, in fact, go off on tangents when I feel like it. And my editor has to reel me in, uh-huh. which is okay, too. I'm, I'm a pretty good edit, unlike some writers who don't like anybody to touch anything. I, I don't mind criticism or anything to make to improve the story, to make it keep going forward. Uh, sometimes I'll go off on a little bit of a trip because I find it interesting. As I said earlier, say your normal trained historian probably would skip that part of it. But as long as... It keeps the reader interested. That's what, what I'm trying to accomplish.
2: The Allies subhead includes the phrase unlikely alliance. I want to say characters always, but it's not fiction, so I try to avoid it. But they're the sort of people that they demand to tell your story. You can almost see Stalin's jockeying there. He wants to be in the front. and Churchill has so many words to leave us, of course. You have a wheelchair-bound U.S. president with no military experience, a blue-blood British prime minister who was a war hero in the previous century, as you mentioned, also served in the Great War. He was the first lord of the admiralty, so he has a big resume for fighting war and for directing and guiding a war. They join this son of an abusive Georgian shoemaker who rises to be the absolute dictator of a nation on a pile of bodies, and not only that, but He'd signed a pact. I mean, that was sort of his first marriage, if you want to look at it that way. His first alliance was with Hitler. They divide up Poland, and they have a much deeper connection and alliance than the word pact indicates. This is one of the things that we have to erase or FDR has to erase to get people to deal with Stalin to back this alliance, because you don't want to remind people that he was on Hitler's side until five minutes ago, until Hitler stabs him in the back. So how do each of the big three contribute to finding at times what seems like a postage stamp of common ground. When they start meeting, when they start having to work together, how do they find that human connection, maybe, other than a little bit of liquor and things when they meet in person? What do they do to find that common ground?
3: Well, I think, first of all, you have to understand that none of them really fully trusted the other. Roosevelt didn't fully trust Churchill because Roosevelt hated empires, because the British had the greatest empire in the world. And he was concerned that they were going to try to reassemble it after the war. Churchill didn't really fully trust Roosevelt because he wasn't sure how committed he was to the war. And also, he wasn't sure how Roosevelt perceived Stalin. And Stalin didn't trust anybody, including himself. (laughs) So he said once. So they were all a little bit suspicious. And it took a long time. It took until 1943 to assemble a meeting of all three of these men where they could actually look each other in the eye. And the main reason for that was Churchill and Roosevelt had had meetings, conferences, but uh, Stalin didn't like to fly. And so he always found some excuse as to why he couldn't meet up with the others. He said he had to be at the front with the troops because the Germans were attacking. And of course, he never got within 100 yeah, miles of really. the that anybody <laughs> knows of. But anyway, he, they finally uh, came up with a scheme to have the, a conference in Tehran, in, in Iran, where uh, the Churchill and Roosevelt could fly in, dodging German fighter planes, and Stalin could come down in his armored train. So that first meeting was—it was pleasant, um, actually, for the most part. They did get to know each other, and it was informal in the beginning. One of the strange things that happened was as soon as Roosevelt and Churchill arrived, they were informed by Stalin that they needed to move into the Russian embassy there, the Soviet embassy, because there was some suspicious German plot to assassinate them. It involved paratroops and so forth. And they didn't know what to do, so they did that. And, and of course, they, all the State Department people and the other aides thought it was simply an occasion to spy on them, bug their rooms and so forth. And that actually was probably true because when Roosevelt got to his rooms there in the Soviet embassy, you know, because he was a paraplegic, he was in a wheelchair, and he found that the bathroom had been completely remodeled for a handicapped
2: person. <laughs> Just so happens.
3: <laughs> but they got along pretty well. Churchill had a strange episode. He he had a bit of the black dog one day after a, a long series of sessions in which. Roosevelt, for some reason, needled him a little bit, and so did Stalin. You know, you get three people, at some point, two of them are going to gang up on the third one. I mean, I found that true all my life. Not necessarily in a horrible, bad way, but there's just going to come a time when that'll happen. And that happened. And so over toasts that evening, and there were always many toasts in the Russian embassy, uh, always accompanied by a lot of vodka. And Stalin announced one of these toasts that he thought that it would be appropriate after the war to execute at least 50,000 German officers. And Churchill was horrified. He said, British people stand for no such thing, that if war crimes were committed, they were given fair trials. And Roosevelt sort of chimed in, I guess hoping to break the ice. Perhaps not 50,000, but 49,500 we could execute. And at this, Churchill stormed out of the room. He had too much brandy, knocked his brandy glass over. And so he stormed out of the room and muttering to himself. And unfortunately, he didn't go into the hallways he expected. He'd gone into a dark cloakroom. And there he stood in the dark. <laughs> I love this. For a few moments until he found a pair of hands on his shoulders leading him back, and it was Stalin, and explained through his interpreter who was only joking. That did break the ice, and, and uh, they had a, a, a nice evening after that. But those, those are little events that occur that are interesting in the, the context that, as you said, these were the three most powerful men in the world, in the history of the world. These three men, three of them together, was the most powerful alliance that had ever been made, yeah, That was a church, a Churchill observation. They tried to work together as best they could. Stalin was very difficult. He wanted the United States to supply him with practically everything when the United States was trying to supply itself, but they complied as best they could. But it's amazing how it worked out. It could have worked out another way. The Stalin-Russians had caved in in 1942 if, oh, I don't know, if the invasion Across the channel in 1944, had failed, which it could have if Russia had gone down. the world would have been a different place. seriously could have been a different place. So this was a big
2: deal, to put it mildly occurs to me that two significant stories or episodes of Churchill's life happen in cloakrooms. There's that one where he accidentally walks in there, which is just a great moment. To, not for him, but just to think of him wandering into a closet. And then, of course, you're not going to walk back out because you've just stormed out dramatically. And in fact, it's something they do in sitcoms. And the other big event he had was he was born in a cloakroom at Blenheim Palace. Of course, in Blenheim Palace, the cloakroom is probably the size of most people's first apartments. But (laughs) it takes them a whole year to paint it. They're always painting it because they have to go around. And by the time they're done painting it, they have to start again. Now, we get a lot of those anecdotes from Churchill because he writes so much. You write in The Allies. Joseph Stalin was arguably as different from Winston Churchill as it could possibly be. The reason we have all that information from Churchill is He said flat out he thought history would be kind to him for he intended to write it. FDR dies before the end of the war. No memoirs from him. Stalin is what we might call an unreliable narrator in fiction. He's certainly not going to write down the truth. He's literally airbrushing people out of pictures. So he's not going to tell us the full story. He's not going to give us some clever anecdotes. He had had
3: his own version of his own history, and that was it. (laughs) And if anybody wanted to deviate from that, they did so at the risk of their own lives. So Stalin was very hard to... To study until recently when the Soviet Union broke up and much more information has come out, although it's not a full picture, it's certainly better than what they used to have, which was just Stalin's version of his own history. You know, he was exiled to Siberia. He claimed, I don't know, six or eight times. I think we can document three of them. He had it in his history when he was Soviet premier. These great escapes that he made, and he made uh, uh, crashing through icy rivers and and being chased by wolves and shot at by Cossacks. In fact, first escape, his mother had sent him a train fare on the Trans-Siberian Express, and he caught a sleigh into the nearest town with a station and boarded the train, and he went there, and he went back to work in various cities there in, in Russia, and they caught him again. And they sent him back. And, you know, the way the Tsar exiled people to Siberia was not the way Stalin did. Stalin, if he exiled you to Siberia, you were very unlikely to come back. They literally worked you to death. But under the Tsar, it was simply, you go away, and we're going to give you a stipend to live on. Give you money for rent and clothing and some food every month. And you just stay away. Stay out of the affairs of the Tsar. And Stalin... There there were two houses in this little Siberian village that Stalin was exiled to. One was for political exiles, the other was for criminals. And Stalin, of course, was in the political exile bunch, but they they threw him out. Because (laughs) when it came time for him to do the dishes, he simply put them on the floor and let the dogs lick them clean and he was very unsanitary so they they banished him from the house he went to live with the criminals and he said he enjoyed living with the criminals that they were a better sort of people that they were more truthful than the exiles the political exiles more honest <laughs>
2: Those are good stories to be able to, I don't know if that's a relatively new find, the ones that you mentioned, but that's the thing I wonder with Churchill. He's sort of like the Adamses in the American revolutionary period where they wrote everything down. And so they, those are the only words we have to go back to. So they get the last say on you. Fortunately, they are very honest about their own flaws as well as the flaws of others. So we can trust them to a great extent, the Adamses. But with Churchill, that's the same thing, I would think. I would think it would be tough that not to let his words take over your book, just because there's so much more that he wrote, and he was always writing his thoughts, and he was expressing them in such a clever way. Was that tough for you to, to balance it out here, to try to get an even perspective of all of them and their flaws, warts and all?
3: No. I, uh, you know, well, Churchill was self-serving, like anybody would be if you're writing biographical stuff, autobiographical stuff. He would have say when he thought he'd done something wrong but sometimes he he just put his own spin on it and then again you've got a tremendous amount of material other than only his writings. The main biography was started by his son Randolph uh, who passed away after the third volume I think and uh, then was taken up by Sir Martin Gilbert who uh, remains one of the finest Churchill biographers and then there's God knows how other many, everybody, Manchester, you name it. There's a wealth of information on Churchill, and it's just simply a matter of looking at it and boiling it down to what is interesting and important. Because uh, you could, Lord, I could write a 5,000-word biography of Churchill if I wanted to. I don't want to, but
0: I could.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: You get all the material it's that's lying around out there. But I think that he was of the three, the most interesting He's quite a complicated man, but he was an earnest man of the three. He was the only one who remained faithful to his wife all through the years. And for being as busy as he was, he had a a personal side to him. Chartwell, for instance, this great country house, he managed to buy. Churchill's had never had any money. They were the second sons of the money of the, the nobility, and uh, they had to earn it. And Churchill earned pretty well, but he spent very well until, in his older years, his writing became his chief source of income and, and allowed him to do things such as buy Chartwell and restore it to
2: a great country estate. The book is titled The Allies, but other than manpower, Stalin seems to see the relationship as a one-way street. For example, you describe the Doolittle Raid, the retaliation on Tokyo on the Japanese home islands after the Pearl Harbor attack. Stalin not only refuses to let the Americans use a base, which maybe you could understand, he doesn't want to draw Japanese attention or a Japanese attack, but what's not acceptable or not understandable is he imprisons the Doolittle pilots who land there after their raid. Most of them go to China, manage to land there, and actually the Japanese slaughter a couple of hundred thousand Chinese in retaliation for them, sheltering those pilots. So here you're supposed to be our allies, and they jail these pilots. The pilots end up having to escape down through Iran. How should we view Stalin's contributions from this Russia that's cast as FDR's genial Uncle Joe in the propaganda. Is there anything you, as you read, wish that they hadn't done? Any compromises that weren't necessary to winning the war that you wish Churchill and FDR had had our hindsight to be able to realize that was just giving him too much for what he was giving us?
3: Well, when you look at Stalin, I think you have to go back to Marx, this is one of his first tenets of Communism, Marxism, was unjustified as the means. Lying, cheating, stealing, all of that has no real moral place in that society other than to get what you, you want for the party, for communism. And they did indeed uh, take that air crew that crashed, well, uh, crash, they landed in Russia. And, of course, they immediately seized their plane and, and took it apart piece by piece so they could copy it. They did escape. Toward the end of the war, Stalin, after they had essentially defeated the Germans, Stalin threw his lot in and declared war on Japan. But the question was, what would he want in return for this? Would he want the Kuril Islands, or would he want Japan itself? And in fact, he probably would have taken Japan itself had not the Americans taken it first. We got there first, after the atomic bomb was dropped. But I'm not sure you a question of what Churchill and Roosevelt would have done differently. The, the big problem was, toward the end of the war, that the Soviet army occupied almost all of Eastern Europe and the Northern Europe. And the only way you were going to dislodge them was to fight them. And so, essentially, the allies, the two allies now... The Churchill and Roosevelt, uh, or then Truman, after Roosevelt passed away, really just sort of caved in and, and hoped for the best. And I don't see that they had a whole lot of choice there, because the Soviets were enormously strong, and they didn't have to worry about public opinion, hmm. uh, which is one, I guess, virtue of a communist state. The newspaper says what the premier tells it to say. And they do what they're told to do, and I think he'd have a lot of problems if the Americans suddenly taken up fighting the Russians. Oh, then I guess we could have dropped an atomic bomb
2: on them, but all that is really moot talk. You're enjoying my conversation with Winston Groom about his latest book, The Allies, Roosevelt, Stalin, Churchill, and the Unlikely Alliance that Won World War II. Publishers Weekly writes of the Allies, quote, Groom brings his experience as both a novelist and historian to bear in this well-researched and fast-paced narrative of the complex relationship among the three statesmen who determined the outcome of World War II. This is an excellent history. I think one thing that makes a history excellent and makes them able to say that and anxious to say it, just as I'm anxious to heap praise on the Allies, is You always have that sense of the personal, something you bring to your fiction writing. For instance, there's a footnote. You mentioned how you like to go on tangents sometimes, and your footnotes are a great source of that. I love a footnote. I feel like it's a little gift in there. You ever eat a salad when you're a little kid? They put maybe some cherries in there or something for you or or olives it was for me growing up in a (laughs) Greek American household and you pick through it for the olives right that's a little surprise it keeps you eating the lettuce the other things that are good for you and I love a footnote for that reason there is such a footnote in the Allies that's about your grandfather who led ships across the U-boat gauntlet in the Atlantic to supply the Russians what does his experience providing that lifeline to the Soviets tell us about the relationship between the big three
3: Yeah, that was extremely dangerous in the first parts of the war because of the German submarines, and they were sinking ships right and left. Then, of course, when the convoys headed for Russia, they had to pass the north of Norway, and the Germans had fighter bombers there, and they got attacked from the air as well as below the sea. It was an extremely dangerous adventure. There were convoys making up every week. Large convoys, 100 ships, 80 ships. One convoy went out, I think, with 60 ships, and only four Ugh. arrived. It was a lot of, a lot of death and slaughter there. The first thing that happened was that the British broke the German secret code, so they could read the submarines' communications with Germany, and that was enormously helpful. And then as we were producing more and more destroyer escorts, that was very helpful. And we ultimately overcame it and we killed more sub German submarines than they could reproduce. And so slowly that big, huge number of 300 and I believe 40 German submarines shrank to, to 240 and then 140 and finally it shrank to almost nothing. But that took four years.
2: And Stalin has no sympathy or no commiseration or something you'd expect from an ally is what I was thinking as I'm reading that. He just wants FDR to keep sending him. He has no – it's one thing that you expect a dictator in his mold to have no care for the people that are under his boot. But he almost seems like he doesn't even conceive of the fact that he's saying, hey, we're losing a lot of sailors, a lot of men here, merchant marines, all these people that they're losing trying to supply them. He just finds that almost an annoyance.
3: Well, you could always expect a man who's killed ten million of his own people to be worried about a few sailors
2: and marines of yeah.
3: Americans. But Stalin's attitude was if you want to win the war and you want the armies to beat the Germans, you had got to send us these things. It was not like please send us these things. It was you better send us these things. That was his attitude. He was not a very cooperating partner. <laughs> he would send messages that were infuriating to Roosevelt and to Churchill, and they would not be drawn into that. They would generally respond in diplomatic way. The Russians were simply pragmatic. They knew they needed the materials until they got their factories up and running, and they demanded them and kept demanding them.
2: That was their strategy, if you could call it that, was to just not care if they lose millions and millions of people. But that was not that was not the Anglo-American idea of how to prosecute the war it was to do it smarter and try to preserve human life. So uh, that's something that reading the Allies, I, I hadn't thought of it from that perspective and not to join the fuzzy propaganda <laughs> arm of of casting the Soviets, but they're getting casualty reports if he cared about them. But still, we should care about them. They're losing hundreds of thousands of men that are being tortured and killed and murdered and harmed ways to the German onslaught. So you could see them saying, hey, don't, don't worry about the cost of the butcher bill. Pay that later.
3: Yeah, well, the, and, and that was Stalin's principal advantage was this enormous manpower that he had. The Germans, one German general, I remember him saying after Kursk, I think the Battle of Kursk, he said, oh, yeah, we wiped out six divisions. We wiped out six German divisions. That's 15,000, 20,000 men per division. And he comes up with six more. And Stalin is training all of these men beyond the Ural Mountains. And so if he lost an entire army, he had another army waiting in the wings. He didn't care about human life. He, he issued an edict early on in the war that anyone caught retreating would be killed, would be shot. Not not deserting. Uh, that, that was But just to retreat, you would be shot. He had a saying, he said, it takes a brave man to be a coward in the Russian army.
2: Yeah. Even his son, right? One his his, his own
3: son. He yeah. said, if you're a prisoner, if you're taken prisoner, you, you are a traitor. And his own son was captured. And he said, to poor, I have no son. Yeah. <laughs> he was a brutal man, and yet he could show tenderness for his daughter. Sometimes he had a terrible relationship with her, but when she was little, he she was very close to her. And then it got worse and worse as time drew on. Uh, she acquired a boyfriend, at one point, and he was found out about it, and he was enraged, and immediately this boyfriend was sent to Siberia, for which she never forgave him.
2: Especially the hard life that she has that you describe in the Allies and her mother and and all that, and then she has a little chance at happiness there, and Stalin is just not going to abide anything that, that is a distraction. He doesn't want even the smallest thing. I mentioned about being a child going through a salad reading the book. You, you could see him as an adult is like a spoiled child with things. If he doesn't like it, doesn't want to do it, he's just not going to do it. And he does have that dual nature. However, you quote Churchill biographer Roy Jenkins saying Stalin would play dual roles as hard cop friendly cop. You mentioned a little bit about that in the cloakroom there, where after outraging Churchill, he goes in and puts a hand on his shoulder, and, and you can imagine Churchill wanting to wash that shoulder afterwards, because he a guy with literal blood on his hands. That really shaped the post-war world, though. The idea that suddenly they become such bad cops, the Soviets, and how we have to pay that butcher bill. As I said, FDR is not around to do it, but Churchill is. What do you think that says about how we look at things today. Do you think we can learn anything from that, to not be in the moment, to try to maybe find a way? We're not we're not fighting Hitlers now, but we seem to call everybody Hitler and look at things in a very binary way. How do you think that should shape our foreign policy when we are dealing with some unsavory characters?
3: Well, I think the foreign policy needs to be very hard-nosed. We do have some bad characters out there, bad players. North Korea is one. Iran is another. Uh, both of them are trying to develop long-range nuclear weapons that could reach this country and Europe, and we better the hell pay attention to it. Because they, again, these are very pragmatic people. They're, they're, gonna, they're not going to abide by treaties. You have to do what Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify it. And I wouldn't even trust him personally. <laughs> if you've got to verify it, you don't trust him. Right. Uh, that's a fact. We're making a great to-do about the Saudi Arabians and Mr. Khashoggi they murdered. But good God, Roosevelt was an ally with a man who murdered yeah. millions of his own people.
2: And then he millions. wasn't the first one the Saudis murdered either. <laughs> it's well, all, yeah, the Saudis, it's true. Are,
3: like the Saudis are two or three generations out of the desert. I mean, they're people, like stone women to death for adultery and things. They don't have the same values we have. It just struck me as being kind of yeah. We were all buddy-buddy with the Soviets. We made nice movies about them, and we wrote nice books about them, and there was a whole propaganda yeah. system going to make the Americans think that the Russians were lovely, the people who did folk dances and so forth,
2: and there was no no problem over that. They were a great friend suddenly. Even cartoons. There's a couple of Bugs Bunny cartoons that he's in, so literally making a cartoon character out of this Bloodthirsty dictator, because it was required. The, Churchill says, "If Hitler invaded hell, I would make at least a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons." So that's a, <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a
3: Shakespeare paraphrases. Uh, War among yeah. strange bedfellows. These are bad people. They hate us. Death to America and so forth. And man, it runs North Korea. Executed one of his own relatives with an aircraft gun, of all things. They're bad, but we have to deal with them. And I don't know what's going on exactly today. I think it's better. We have some pretty competent people in the State Department now. But we'll see. They're both
2: works in progress. You talk about the various alliances that we have. We look at the... Special relationship now is just being a foregone conclusion, but it goes through some tense days. I always look at the parallel here between Theodore Roosevelt, who states flat out, he never liked Winston Churchill, he comes around in World War One. You don't say that in the Allies, but I had read a few places that FDR also held it against Churchill a little that he didn't remember their first meeting when they were young men. Because Churchill would have been in the Admiralty at that point, and FDR is only in TR's position as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. But that's something that does worry Churchill, and you mentioned that earlier, about him not trusting FDR He keeps saying, if the Japanese attack you, will you come into war against the Germans? And FDR doesn't give a flat answer, which I guess he shouldn't. There's no treaty obligation there. He wants to keep his options open. But that's frustrating for Churchill, who, like Stalin, is fighting for his life. Hitler ultimately makes that decision for FDR by declaring war on the United States, even though the Japanese hadn't even told him they planned to go after Pearl Harbor. The same thing, Stalin refuses to attack Japan until he can get in at the kill. He wants to have a very low risk, high reward for that action. He's only at war with Japan officially for a few days. Once they had Germany on the ropes, the glue of that common threat from Hitler's army is gone. It weakens progressively. And I wanted to ask, having written the Allies, do you think tactically, with your very omniscient point of view right now, having written the book, Do you think that if Hitler had been a different sort of man, a better tactician, if he hadn't had all the physical problems that we know so well and just been playing flat out insane when he made decisions, do you think he might have found a way to split this three-way alliance? Was there ever a moment that if he had changed this tactic, if he had done this, he might have been able to split either the Americans and the British from the Soviets or even the American and the British from each other?
3: Yeah, sure. Sure. That moment came when he decided to attack the Soviet Union. That was the dumbest decision he made in entire war. Huge miscalculation. I don't think his generals liked it, but he did it anyway. That got him fighting wars on two fronts, and that's that's a very difficult thing to do. But he thought he could win it by the summer, attacking in the spring, and win it by the middle of the summer. And he didn't. He got bogged down in the Russian winter, as we all know, just like Napoleon. He wound up uh, losing the whole shebang. I think that that if he had served his armies, the Allies would have found it very difficult to have prevailed in the Middle East and Sicily and all that. He would have just been too strong there. He almost was as it were, but they overcame it when the Americans came in. When the Americans got into war, Hitler was doomed, pretty much, unless he somehow had prevailed in Russia, which he did not. Russia was the catalyst. So for that, we can be grateful to the Soviet Union for putting up such a a stiff fight. They did it on orders, and the orders were good orders. But of course, as we all know, Stalin had, had executed most of his best generals back in the 1930s, and so he had a serious leadership problem at first. But they ironed that out, and he had some pretty good generals. But essentially, it was not... What we consider warfare. I mean, it was not military science. It was simply assembling numbers.
2: The Allies build steadily towards that Tehran conference meeting of the Big Three. By that point, people describe it as the Big Two and a Half because Churchill, by that point, the empire has really been depleted in so many ways by fighting this grinding war for their survival. And of course, Roosevelt wants them to. Give up the empire. There's that communique back and forth where Churchill tells them, well, empires don't deal, and the Roosevelt State Department wires back on his orders that, well, democracies do. He's really got that in his head, which is strange when you consider that here the Soviets talk about an expansionist empire. Ronald Reagan would later call it the evil empire. They certainly had designs on the rest of the world that FDR doesn't see. What do you think, as an American, our view should be of FDR? It's hard to be critical of somebody who wins a war, who's on every dime that you handle, dies in office, not to mention is in a wheelchair and still giving service. But I think we could take a fair look at him as being a flawed person like any other person. When we look at the propaganda that he gives the Soviet Union, of the, the way that he does it, how far he goes into it, and the Misreading of Stalin, thinking he could charm this snake. What do you think our view of FDR should be in light of that?
3: Well, I think one of the things that Roosevelt did in contrast to Churchill. Churchill ran everything personally, now Roosevelt listened very closely to George Marshall, who was his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He deferred to the military for decisions because he never been in the military. And at the same time, he he didn't so much defer to his secretary of state. He crafted his own policies, but they were policies that were advised by people like Harry Hopkins and others who were close to him. Roosevelt, was a, he was a compromiser in a positive sense. He knew how to get things done. And he could call up Henry Kaiser and say, "Look, how many of these Liberty ships can you produce here?" And he could talk to Turkey of these people. And one of the greatest advantages Roosevelt showed over the course of the war was his these fireside chats with the people. He sounded like he was on their side. Because this was a tough war. I mean, people were, were having to sacrifice a lot. The home people had to sacrifice with rationing, and you couldn't get gasoline, you couldn't get tires, food was rationed, everything was rationed. Then their, their sons and daughters and brothers were over fighting and dying during this horrible war. There were elections being held. Roosevelt managed to calm the nation, make them feel like they were a part of a, a great crusade, and he could do that extraordinarily well, very much like Churchill could. He didn't have the eloquence of Churchill. But he had a sort of homespun way of speaking that made the nation feel like they were one at war. And I think that was a huge advantage that Roosevelt had.
2: I'd like to end our chat where your book does, and that's with the epilogue. You write there, Today, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin appear almost like dinosaurs, giants who ruled the earth in their time. That reminded me of Churchill's favorite song as a schoolboy at the Harrow School, which has many lyrics about the giants of old. In fact, that's what it's called. It's called Giants. And it talks about how mighty they were, and they were never lame or stiff or sore. And compared to them, we're all cast in a pygmy mold is the phrase they use, because we're all short. We all come short. And so that's the whole song. Churchill actually goes back to Harrow School when he's fighting world war 2 and he finds they're no longer singing this song and he asks them to sing it and the reason why is the last line which says that they think that it's all bunk basically that it's all bull that all of we whoever we be is the line Come up to the Giants of Old UC, and you can just see a young Churchill who's dreaming of how he's someday going to be a great man. He tells a friend when he's 15, and it's contemporary, it's documented, it's also in the book God and Churchill by his great-grandson, Jonathan Sands. And he says, I'm going to be called upon someday to do something great, and when he's in those war moments... Writes his mother, this is what every mother wants to hear. Well, I don't think that the Almighty would have created such an amazing being as myself to just have me die such a pedestrian death, face down in the muck by a bullet. And that's why he writes My Early Life, right? He wants to inspire young people. And he wants to say, hey, we we can all fill those shoes as impossible as it may seem, because everybody's lame and stiff and sore. and Nobody throws to 100 yards and more, again, from this song, Giants. What lessons do you hope your readers will absorb from the Allies and apply to our own interpersonal relationships and our leadership challenges, even if we're never called on to defeat a menace like Adolf Hitler's armies?
3: Well, first of all, Churchill lived in the past. He was an historian. He was like George Patton. He absorbed history and he took the lessons from it. And what I would like the readers of this book to do, which 75, 70 years on now from the Second World War and certainly beyond that to the young lives of these men, I'd like for the readers to look at it and absorb what were those men like? What were their, their good traits and their bad traits? And what were the lessons to be learned? It's all there in the book. It's no secret. This is well-plowed ground. I'm not saying that it's stale, but the lessons of World War II are plain as the nose on your face. And what I'd like my readers to appreciate is the qualities of these three men, Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill, all the disqualities of them, for that matter, and live their lives accordingly, I guess, and
2: enjoy it. Enjoy the book. Well, Mr. Winston Groom, I certainly did enjoy it. You said you wanted to delight the reader, and I jotted that down at the end here so I could tell you that you definitely delighted me, and I thank you for doing that. I thank you for taking the time to join me today. I do read a lot of World War II books, but the Allies thoroughly held my interest, and it fleshed out my images of this pivotal alliance that cracked the Axis. I think even people who have never picked up a book on any of the big three before will find it really enjoyable for the same reason that your fiction work, that your novels absorb people. Because in the final analysis, it's a great story, a series of great stories. And the footnotes are great, too, so don't skip over those. Don't skim over them. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and hope readers will check out The Allies. Well,
3: thank you very, very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure.
2: pleasure was all mine.
1: The world knew or at any rate guessed that the Anglo-American Soviet conference was on, but the location, Tehran, was still a secret as the aircraft converged onto the Persian capital. Tehran itself was well chosen as the meeting place, a convenient halfway house, so to speak, for the big three to perfect their plans. To us in Britain, the street scene presents something quite new, something less familiar than the setting of any previous conference.
2: Again, the book is The Allies. Roosevelt, Stalin, Churchill, and the unlikely alliance that won World War II. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate via the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, click on that banner to take you through to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can join an alliance with us right here on the show and keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I have to give a huge thank you to Winston Groom for joining us and for giving us this fuller understanding of the relationship between the three men who shaped victory in World War II and the post-war world. It's a legacy that we've inherited here in the 21st century, and it shapes the world around us in ways big and small. Let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, on Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. The
0: boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street Gone are the places where the gang used to be We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.
1: At the Soviet embassy, there was a ceremony of the presentation of the Sword of Honor for Stalingrad. This, of course, was the sword presented by the king on behalf of the people of Britain. A magnificent tribute to the immortal fame of the defenders of Stalingrad, whose victory there was a turning point in the war, a turning point which led to a year of Allied victories on every front.